Hello and welcome to the Archives of Diseases of Childhood's Archimedes podcast. This is the evidence-based section of the Archives where clinicians ask evidence-based questions and come up with the best evidence-based answers. Sometimes they're amazingly evidence-based and full of RCTs and goodness and sometimes they're not quite there. We also have a section about evidence appraisal in some way or the practice of evidence-based medicine and this month we're asking the question about quality improvement. You see, there's been a fashionable flurry of activity around quality improvements and those reports are in our journal as well. The key message is about how a QI project was undertaken and you might think that evidence-based medicine has three choices in this situation. Does it take them head on and fight them? Does it fly from them and ignore their existence? Or does it get around a table with a shared cup of tea, maybe some nice cakes, and have a discussion about how the two things can work together? Why might we fight EBM against QI? Well, QI reports aren't trials, they don't have controlled arms, and they suffer, I think, from significant publication bias. For example, no one will be surprised to hear that in my role as an associate editor for the journal, I have not seen a report that has demonstrated how someone's carefully thought out QI intervention was useless and had no benefits at all. You see, the difficulty with EBM fighting QI is that fighting itself rarely has any positive outcomes. And and what's the point? So should we refuse to engage with them at all and fly from them. Any sort of engagement with these uncontrolled studies must be weakening the basis of trials are needed for interventions that sits quite near the heart of EBM. And ignoring the dastardly QI things might make them go away. But in life, ignoring things on the whole doesn't help very much either. So, Really, we've only got the opportunity to sit down and work out what the benefits are for the pair and how does EBM and QI interact. Well, QI reports are not research in the sense that they don't generate new generalizable knowledge. They are stories of how a group managed to do something in their locality. What they do is say the outcome that one set of folks achieved – And not that it is as better or as good as any outcome would be if they did anything different. That's more like what an RCT would do. And these things are highly likely to be situation specific. It's an implementation. It's the local wiring that might make something work. For example, how do you get to the loo from the doctor's office? I'm guessing there are quite a lot of correct answers to that question. But they're all location-specific. You see, I think that EBM and QI do need to be undertaken together. The QI intervention should, in my ivory tower-based opinion from evidence-based ancient history, be about implementing something that has good research evidence behind it. For example, if you are trying to reduce the time to antibiotics in sepsis, can you show from evidence that reducing the time of antibiotics and sepsis actually makes a difference to outcomes in clinical practice. If you can, then what you need is a good way of making that happen. Now, publishing QI reports, well, that is to make clear to others how solutions can be found. Perhaps think of these as the practical equivalent of a campfire story, because we all know, don't we, 
stories are the things that change the world. We have two reports this month. The first report is from a paediatric team in Exeter in England. And they're asking the question, doctors Hart, Osborne and Liversedge, about a baby who they've been asked to go and see on the postnatal ward. The baby was born to a mum who had antenatally detected polyhydramnios, no other problems on the ultrasound scan, and now the baby's popped out, it looks a perfectly happy and bubbly thing full of joy. You've been asked to go and pass a nasogastric tube to get rid of any lingering doubt that the baby has esophageal atresia. But the mum asks, do you really need to do that? Now, the team went away, they searched for evidence extensively using different electronic databases, and they came back with six papers that were broadly relevant. Only one necessarily and directly addressed the question, but the others add flavour to the whole idea. The one that did address the question was a relatively small study, only 30 or so babies. And what that looked at was the positive predictive value of polyhydramnios without any other features in looking at esophageal atresia. It found that it was only about 2.7% and such a very, very low number they considered to be consistent with the idea that you shouldn't pass a nasogastric tube in all babies, only if there are other features that make it more concerning. So, for example, a smaller absent stomach bubble. Well, the other studies put in information to do with this, and polyhydramnios with a smaller absent stomach bubble increases your predictive value, that is, the number of babies who will have esophageal atresia, up to somewhere between one-third and two-thirds. Fewer babies will then have a nasogastric tube pass that really don't have esophageal atresia and really weren't at much risk of having esophageal atresia. There will still be some babies that are missed. There is a low sensitivity of only about 25% or so. And the pathological explanation for this is that there's often a tracheoesophageal fistula. And so some air still leaks in below the atritic portion. And so then there is still a stomach bubble found. Their bottom lines that come out of this really of clinical importance are that polyhydramnios alone in a well baby does not mean that you need to pass an asiastric tube, but that you should be alert to ones who have other ultrasound findings and maybe consider it in those. But even babies who don't have findings that are highly suggestive of esophageal atresia antenatally, if they've got clinical findings that suggest esophageal atresia, those you should be concerned about and go ahead and investigate further. The other question is also to do with babies, but this time the teeny tiny ones that really shouldn't have been born yet. And this is from Professor Malloy and Dr Cosgrove from Dublin in Ireland. They ask a question about an ex-26-week prem who's now 32 weeks, who's still in prong oxygen, the oxygen requirement's been going up a bit, and their haemoglobin is low, and so the consultant on the ward round suggests that we should have a red cell transfusion and a fruzomide chaser to get the fluid out. The medical student on the ward round asked the question, why? Now, those of you who work in England will be well aware that there has been a nice guideline on blood transfusion recently, but you'll also probably remember that it didn't include neonates. So these team from Dublin went away, they searched the evidence widely, expecting in neonates as you do to find thousands of studies, and they found, well, three. Two randomised control trials, one controlled study that was not randomised, and one systematic review that included adults as well as neonates and children. The two RCTs were small, of 20 and 40 premies. What they found was that there was a small decrease in the oxygen requirement, 
of those babies that were transfused and got the frusamide, and that there were some small changes in the respiratory parameters. These really only happened over the first sort of 24 hours or so and settled down afterwards, didn't have a significant improvement after that point. And actually, the change in parameters themselves was really very small. For example, a 2% difference in the required inspired oxygen concentration. The controlled study really backed this up as well, showing improvements, small improvements in the physiological respiratory parameters that were settled. But none of these have really shown any meaningful clinical improvement over time. Of course, they're all so small that the trials themselves don't demonstrate any adverse events of frusamide either. But that's that difficult situation where we do know that frusamide is a specific renal poison in some ways. And so if you don't need to give a drug, if it doesn't give you any meaningful benefit, then really should you not give it until a trial, which might or might not happen, would be suggesting that there could be some meaningful benefit. Next month, who knows what will be in the Archimedes podcast? Maybe it could be you. Actually, that's quite unlikely given the length of the publication cycle. It tends to take longer than that. But it might be you in a few months' time if you submit your Archimedes question. Pop on our website to find out how. Twitter us at ADC underscore BMJ or email us at info.adc at bmj.com. Until next month, thank you for listening.